0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature.
0: Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: Okay, welcome to the show. I have an update for you. Let's start with that. It's kind of a, a difficult one. I have some difficult news to share. We'll get to that in a minute. Let me just start by saying that I've always looked at the history of literature the story of literature is really what I'm trying to do here we're taking this journey together I've always viewed it as a something a little broader than just literature it's a story of art it's a story of the human condition the story of a lot more than just what you find in books the story of life and I guess that needs to include my life. Can't avoid that much as I would like to. But sometimes it means that my life intrudes on this journey that we're taking together. I don't want to dismiss that entirely. I think you deserve more than that. Those of you who have been with me all this time, or maybe those of you who are just coming here for the first time. I am a person. I'm not a a robot. I'm not someone reading a script. I can't help it. I've got to share with you when when things happen, things that, that make us depart from the journey. Now, it's not really in me for everything in this show to be about me. I didn't call it the Jack Wilson show. That was the old show, which was fun. But this is the history of literature, and I know that a lot of you probably don't really care About what I'm about to talk about, which is me. So, if you're here for the guests and the regular shows, the history of literature, that's fine. We have another interview coming up soon and a show about Rome. We're leaving India. We're heading back over to Rome, the Roman Republic as it fell and turned to empire. That show will be called Poetry and Empire, and we'll look at Virgil and Ovid, Horace, Catullus, maybe a few others. It's a fascinating subject. The research is nearly finished. I actually was about to record that show when the the events of my life overtook me. I've been interested in Rome for 20 or maybe 25 years now. It's one of my pet obsessions. Can't get enough of ancient Rome. I'll talk about that more when we get to that show. Here's another pet obsession many of you know. Something that's I've been immersed in for even longer than I've been interested in Rome. The Beatles. That must go back 30 years. Maybe maybe more. And now we're getting to our subject for today, which is, unfortunately, which is death and grieving and mourning. The meaning of life. We lost a few people this week. The world did. They're both great men, heroes to me. One of them very close to me. One I've admired from afar, mostly. <laughs> I did have a, a brief intersection with him, which I'll talk about. But that's what I'm going to talk about today. This, this topic interrupted my regular podcasting, as it should. The History of Literature as a podcast, well, this isn't the week for that. We'll get back to that next week, I promise. But I didn't want to just take the week off because I did want to share with you my thoughts on literature and grieving and death and loss, life and death. Here's the question. What do you do, what do you turn to when you go through the mourning process? We've all done it. We're all or we've all contemplated our own future death. We're all in a midlife crisis. I think I think that's true. Mine, mine, I think, started when I was about 10, I think. It's being alive, being human is a midlife crisis. It just gets more enhanced as you get older and as you get to the actual middle point of your life. But it's always there. What do you do to deal with this issue? Others have God. Well, I guess everyone has God or religion or faith or belief of some kind, some way of managing the reality, the knowledge of the reality. Even non-believers can find comfort in the cosmos or comfort in oblivion. Death is weird. That's what my nephew said, eight years old. It's weird. It's just weird and it is weird doesn't stop being weird just because we get older and more mature. We just get accustomed to managing the weirdness. So here are the losses this week. These are what, what I'm referring to. One is Sir George Martin, the producer of the Beatles. He was 90. It's a sadness. It's not a shock but it's a sadness. What a loss. Sir George Martin was a great man, a man who brought joy to millions. The joy of the music, of course. He was instrumental to the music. He was the steward, the usher, the facilitator, the refiner. He gave it a, he wrapped it all in a blanket of excellence. He was the right person in the right role, at the right time, doing all the right things. How many of of us could say that about our lives, that we've ever done that even once? And he put in the hard work and the intelligence and the musicality. He always credited the Beatles with having the genius, but he was being modest. He had his own genius and he changed the world. He was a composer himself, of course, and we're, we're going to listen to some of his compositions at the end today. His orchestration. The orchestration, of course, he had from songs like Yesterday, Eleanor Rigby. He played the solo, the piano solo on in my, in my Life, Unforgettable, Put in the Strings to I Am the Walrus. These are songs that changed music, changed the way we hear music. We're going to hear one of his beautiful soundscapes called Pepperland. He wrote for the the cartoon Yellow Submarine. We'll hear that at the end. It's very affecting. Very moving to me. And you know, it has no words. Just Sir George's music coming through the the hands of the players, and maybe that's as it should be for now for a tribute to Sir George. But there's another way he affected me, and it wasn't just through the music or for what he did to the Beatles' music, but through his interviews, his storytelling. When I was a kid, I had a VHS tape of a documentary narrated by Malcolm McDowell, taped it off PBS, watched it a million times. It was called The Complete Beatles. Every time George Martin appeared on the screen, it was a treasure. His elegance, his accent, his unaffected style. He was a brilliant storyteller. He takes you right into the heart of the studio. By heart, I mean the heart, not just, not just the middle, not just the location, but the heart in its metaphorical sense, it's more than the middle into the heart and soul of the creative process, trying to get from inspiration to beauty, to perfection. He was dealing with at least two geniuses, you could say four, at least three. Come on. And they were all different. Paul could hear everything in his head. He would give specific instructions. You have to keep up with someone like that. I just heard an interview with Dweezel Zappa, the son of the amazing Frank Zappa. And he said, Frank Zappa used to say, window or aisle. That's what he would say to musicians who couldn't keep up with him window or aisle. I'll fly you home. You want to be on the window or the aisle, but you're done. (laughs) Imagine having a Paul McCartney telling you what he hears and what he wants. And to be able to come through for someone like that, to work with him over and over and over every time. Then he had John Lennon, completely different kind of genius. He would come in and say, I want to, can't you make my voice sound orange? (laughs) Then you come up with that. Where he wanted to be, for tomorrow never knows. John, (laughs) he wanted to have thousands of monks chanting. Give me that sound. Give me that sound in my voice. Of thousands of monks chanting, make it come through my voice. They said, okay, we can, we can try playing it through a rotating speaker. And John said, maybe I should dangle upside down. And you could revolve me around a microphone and I could sing. We'll get the same effect. <laughs> It was up to Sir George to say, let's try it through the rotating speaker first. Once, once, once apparently they plugged Paul's bass. If you ever listen to the Beatles, take a listen to the albums before Sergeant Pepper and after. I mean, before Sergeant Pepper and then Sergeant Pepper. You hear the bass. Paul's bass on Sergeant Pepper is right there. It's immediate, loud, it's boomy present in a way. I don't know that a bass guitar was present on a record before. Not just a great part. They were all great parts. He was a very melodic bass player, but just the just the sound of it. And apparently it was because they plugged his bass guitar directly into the console in the recording studio, which had not been done before, at least by the Beatles, maybe by anyone. Now that's how everyone does it. And John liked it so much. And John had his own instrument, of course, his voice. So he came into this, <laughs> he came into the, into the studio. And he said, can you do that with my voice? What, whatever you're doing with Paul's bass, can you do that with my voice? And Sir George said, well, it would probably require an operation because we would need a plug to come out of your neck. <laughs> and then we can do it. That's Sir George's Sir George's work now. I suppose you're wondering why I'm going on about this. Famous people die all the time, true enough. This isn't a an obituary show and and Sir George was not in literature the way that some others might be. We may have to do some shows to commemorate some others who are famous authors. I did have a, a small anecdote that I wanted to share about Sir George. I've never met him, but I did do some work for him once. Our paths crossed in a professional way. It's not something I can Evolve in full detail because of confidentiality restrictions. And it was very, very small. I don't want to over-exaggerate this. In his life, it was minute, microscopic, 15 minutes of his life, probably, a grand life filled with every minute, filled with interesting, fascinating people and activities. Anyway, here it was. I found myself drafting a letter that was to come from Sir George Martin and be sent to another party in connection with the dispute. That's it. That's all. He had the right to change it. But the first draft came from me. And in some ways, even though this is just a a minor thing, a blip on the great life, that was Sir George Martin's life. In some ways for me, it felt like my life's work, my destiny. Was like everything had built up to this. Hadn't I been listening to him for years, give interviews, his voice, his cadence and diction, his rhythms. I thought I can do this. or At least I could aspire to doing this. I knew what he needed to say. I knew what the letter needed to say. I thought, I can put this in his voice. I can mimic it. Or at least I'm the best person on our team to give this a shot. Me, Jack Wilson, not a sir, not even British. But somehow, I felt like I was a spiritual offspring of Sir George. He had been like a father figure in a weird way to me. I'd never met him. He was an inspiration, maybe an obsession. Certainly just pure admiration. I wrote the letter and I could hear it in his voice. I captured his voice. I channeled it through my pen. We sent it off to Sir George and then we got back the revised version and he had completely Rewritten it. <laughs> Every sec- if there were five words that he kept from my original letter, they would have been inadvertent, like "and" and "the." <laughs> I would have, <laughs> I should have done an analysis and underlined the "ands" and the "the," so I could be proud that he hadn't completely obliterated my version with his own. For all my efforts and my confidence, I was not even close. And I had to admit that every sentence that he wrote sounded more like him than mine did. He had a velvet hammer. Is that is that the right expression? A velvet hammer? He had a hammer cloaked in velvet. He had a way of being direct and polite. But scathing it was a tour de force. Probably something he just dashed off, but it was amazing. And I wondered, what did he thought when he read my letter? I mean, it's not like I went overboard. I didn't start out saying like, oh, when I met the lads from Liverpool, no, it was, it was a professional job, but what did he thought when he read the letter? Ah, here's a, here's a bloke from America trying to be me son, let me be me. Anyway, rest in peace, Sir George, you were simply the best. Now, the other loss that we had this week was a loss in my family. This is someone who you may never have heard of. But this is why I'm really going through this. This is why we're taking a break from the history of literature. An uncle of mine, beloved uncle, passed away on the same day as Sir George. Now, it's not a worldwide fame that he had, but he had, what I'd say, an intense local fame, lived in the same community his entire life, and an entire community knew him and loved him. And the outpouring that the rest of my family and I are receiving is special and meaningful. And the loss for me For my family, and especially for my aunt, is severe, broad, is deep, acute, feels hard, just very difficult. Now, you'd been suffering, and we know how that is when that happens to people we love. We get ready, we prepare. And when the end comes, it's not a shock. I've gone through death with three-year-old children. That is horrendous. That is infuriating and awful. And it makes you question everything. makes you angry with no, no place to direct your anger toward. We can recover from a lot of things, but people don't recover from that. When it happens to someone who has been ailing, who's received diagnosis, and we have some time, some months to prepare, we can recover, but we still feel the loss. We feel the absence. The sting, the change, the pull of the mystery, and just the weirdness. As my nephew reminded us in our family, how weird it is. How can he be gone? Where is he? And how can all those experiences and those memories and that life, that force, how can that just disappear? Because he, my uncle, was a champion storyteller. You can see what I'm drawn to. Sir George telling his stories about his work with the Beatles. That's the part of the documentary that appealed to me. And my uncle. Probably the thing that stands out most to me. is His personality, as it came through from his marvelous stories. Sir George, I I got his stories here and there in a documentary, but with my uncle, I got it every holiday, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas Eve, every Easter, every Father's Day and all the other times that we met in between stories. Stories just poured out of him. Everyone paused and listened. No one interrupted his stories because they were funny and insightful, fascinating And it could be about nothing. These weren't the stories of a world traveler telling you about his exploits, hunting lions in Africa or anything like that. They were just stories about a life in a small town. He could tell a story about getting his newspaper delivered, about a, a new newspaper carrier who was leaving the newspaper at the end of the driveway instead of on the porch and his weeks-long saga to persuade the newspaper carrier in various ways to leave it on the, on the porch and say, tell a story like that and you'd be on the edge of your seat, listening, laughing, wondering what would happen. Every family should be lucky enough to have a person like that sitting at their table. And now our table will have a hole. A gap. And for my aunt, well, the gap is huge. They were united for 50 years, and now they aren't. Now it's a an absence. A big, big absence. She's surrounded by friends and family. We'll all be there for her as much as we can. But still, it's a hell of a thing. Death. loss. So here we are, death and grieving. I'm in the thick of it right now, leaving for the funeral. And what do I look for? What do I turn to for help? Some people would turn to the Bible, others maybe poetry or therapist, maybe a close friend, maybe turn to nature. Exercise, alcohol, well, I, I don't know what up, music, wherever people go to find inspiration and comfort. How about literature? That's my thing. What can we get there? I used to go to C.S. Lewis, his book, A Grief Observed, which is a beautiful book. A lot of people turn to that book. He's excellent, but this time I found something else. I went to Jorge Luis Borges, might be my favorite author. You know I've talked about Chekhov before, Kafka. Why Borges? He's like a prophet to me. That's how I view him. If anyone has ever been more immersed in literature I'd like to, I'd like to hear about it. He went blind, of course. He lived a long life. Gradually went blind. But he viewed literature as, as sacred. He was like the librarian, the great, grand librarian, the god of libraries, that's, almost what he's like sitting in libraries, like a like kind of a god. He absorbed literature. And I thought, what does Borges have for me? What can he tell me about the things that I'm wondering about and dealing with? I'll get to that in a minute. Because first, there's another great man, another brilliant writer, another lover of literature, who I ran across when I was doing this search. He died recently too, Umberto Eco. He also loved Borges. That's how I came across him. It's hard to, it's hard to read about Borges without reading about Umberto Eco, the author of The Name of the Rose, a great Italian author a writer. He wrote on a lot of topics, a scholar, semiotics, huge admirer of Borges. Borges was like a, a king to him. I actually crossed paths with Umberto Eco as well. Briefly studied with him in Bologna or studied under him, you might say. It did not go very well. <laughs> That's another story. Today, let me read you what I found. This is Umberto Eco's take on death. It's in an essay called On the Disadvantages and Advantages of Death. And Eco says, The thought that all experience will be lost at the moment of my death makes me feel pain and fear. What a waste. Decades spent building up experience only to throw it all away. We remedy this sadness by working. For example, by writing, painting, or building cities. You die, but most of what you have accumulated will not be lost. You are leaving a message in a bottle. It's beautiful. We saw this this same kind of view in our very first episode of the History of Literature the Epic of Gilgamesh. We saw that Gilgamesh learned, he wrestled with death, with the idea of death of his friend and the thoughts of his own mortality. Remember, he tried to cheat death by going to visit Noah, (laughs) who cheated death in a big way. Someone who had some ideas about how to cheat death, of course, when you and your wife are the only ones, the only humans who survive. Gives you some insight what Gilgamesh thought. A smart move, although Noah couldn't really help him. Gilgamesh eventually concluded that working for posterity, building cities, as Echo points out, maybe Echo was thinking of Gilgamesh, building cities was his way of surviving. You exchange all of your memories and experiences, all the internal things you have in your mind, Those are no longer part of this world, at least. But the things you've done, the people you've touched, the work you've done that you're leaving behind, all of that stays. All of that continues beyond you. These are human goals, and human goals and thoughts and insights. That's what literature is all about. That's what it's there for. This is helpful for me. Sir George doesn't just depart. He'll live on forever. The Beatles, those recordings, they're there. And one part about Echo's paragraph is, quote, very humble, leaving a message in a bottle. That suggests something that may never be discovered again. Maybe it'll just be a a lonely book on a shelf that no one reads for hundreds of years. That's kind of his, his view, I think, of the work that he leaves behind, being modest, but I'm sure there's a lot of authors that feel that way when you look at everything written in the 19th century. How many of the books that were published are just still read and how many of them are like messages in a bottle? might be a whole year that goes by, a whole decade, without a particular book being opened. That's pretty contained. Sir George Martin doesn't have to worry about that. He's left behind a, an entire ocean. No one will have to search very hard. He doesn't have to wonder if his bottle will ever be picked up off the beach. And my uncle has the same kind of legacy, he doesn't need to wonder if I'll pass along his stories, if someone will remember him, if in the future anyone will ever hear his name. He touched hundreds and thousands of people. There's a stadium named after him. His picture's on plaques in halls of fame. So many people call him coach, thought of him as their second father. His legacy is clear and it's intact. It won't fade exactly. It will expand over time. It's a rippling effect. The point of of concentration might fade. It's like a pebble being thrown into a pond. The point of concentration, the pebble, might fade. But the ripples emanate wider and wider. They affect more and more things. They go on. They go on. But we miss that center because the pebble does fade, sinks to the bottom, It's hard to find, settles in with all the other pebbles on the bottom. Our direct memories fade with the passage of time and his own treasure trove of experiences, all the things that were in his mind, all the life that he lived and the thoughts that he had and the people he had met the conversations he remembered in the stories. That's what's so hard about a funeral. That's why we look to heaven and we think we can go there. We can be ourselves again up there. We don't end. We go on. We wonder about that. So let's look at Borges' This is from a New York Times interview. He was 86 years old. Let me tell you, by the time Borges was 86, he had probably read more than anyone had ever read in, on the history of this planet. gave an interview to a reporter. Listen to this question and listen to his answer reporter says, in the Zohar, the Book of Splendor, which Gershom Sholem considers the most important literary work of the Kabbalah, there are many speculations about life after death. Swedenborg describes in detail hells and paradises. Dante's poem is always is also about hell, purgatory, paradise. Where does this tendency of man come from? To try to imagine, and describe something that he cannot possibly know. And Borges says, In spite of oneself, one thinks, I am almost sure to be blotted out by death. But sometimes I think it is not impossible that I may continue to live in some other manner after my physical death. I feel every suicide has that doubt. Is what I am going to do worthwhile? Will I be blotted out, or will I continue to live on another world? Or, as Hamlet wonders, what dreams will come when we leave this body? It could be a nightmare, and then we would be in hell. Christians believe that one continues after death to be who he has been, and that he is punished or rewarded forever, according to what he has done in this brief time that was given to him. I would prefer to continue living after death if I have to, but to forget the life I lived. its Fascinating. Fascinating. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe our blind prophet is glimpsing the truth here. Maybe we want to live, but forget. Maybe that's more beautiful. I find that comforting. You'll be you, but if not, it might be better not to be you. Maybe you live on and forget. Maybe that's better. Gave me a lot to think about. I found this to be consoling to think through some of these things. And here's another passage from Borges. This is the best one. The questioner says, In the conspirators, as in all your work, there is a permanent search for meaning. What is the sense of life? And Borges says, If life's meaning were explained to us, we probably wouldn't understand it. To think that a man can find it is absurd. We can live without understanding what the world is or who we are. The important things are the ethical instinct and the intellectual instinct, are they not? The intellectual instinct is the one that makes us search while knowing that we are never going to find the answer i think lessing said that if god were to declare that in his right hand he had the truth and in his left hand he had the investigation of the truth lessing would ask god to open his left hand he would want god to give him the investigation of the truth not the truth itself of course he would want that because the investigation permits infinite hypotheses And the truth is only one. And that does not suit the intellect because the intellect needs curiosity. We need the curiosity. We need the weirdness. We need the mystery, the doubt, the anger, the not knowing. It's the best way to view death and the best way to view literature. And most of all, The best way to view life the only way. Rest in peace, Sir George, and Mr. Borges and Mr Echo, and most of all, my Uncle Jim. You are much loved, and you will be deeply, deeply missed.